Today's episode of 4 to 6 with A and B is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. The culture is the culture. It's four to six A to B, competitive excellence, and the brotherhood. Uh, The plan to win uh, has never changed. So the culture here and the plan to win is always going to be here at Ohio State. Welcome back to the latest edition of four to six with A and B. I am here in spirit with my co-host, my best friend, and my (laughs) beat partner, (laughs) Bill Landis. How are you, Bill? I'm good. That's a lot of labels. I don't know. I might dispute one or two of them. Yeah, I think I could figure out which one you were going to dispute. But on the last podcast, you did say you missed recording this podcast in person with me. I hope that you are doing well in your quarantine. I hope everybody listening is doing well in their quarantine. And I hope we're one step closer to getting past this terrible thing. Um, But right now, we're going to go back to doing something that we did during the regular season that people loved. And uh, we probably should have done a little bit more, but we're going to do a... um, Listeners question podcast where you dictate our discussion points. Been long overdue, huh, Bill? I don't think we've done a full show basically dedicated to this since the season. Because we used to do like a subscriber-only kind of deal one of the two shows a week. But, yeah, we haven't done it in a minute. I like them. Mostly because it takes all the work off our plate and uh, we let everybody else do the hard work. And I also think that the people who subscribe to The Athletic um, also have great questions. So... Um, if you don't subscribe to The Athletic, this is a nice reminder to be smart like the people who do and go to www.theathletic.com slash 4-6 and get 40% off of an annual subscription. We've got some work we're, we're doing and uh, some big, big stories coming up. Bill did some crazy thing where he decided to chart every single one of Justin Fields' throws last year because this is a psychopath we're dealing with, guys. I don't know how long it's going to take for you to catch on, but what were you thinking? Like <laughs> the number Between that and the numbers post that we did where we ranked or, or said every single um, Ohio State football player and the best uh, number that they ever – and that took forever too. Like what? It looks like you've been keeping busy, huh? 354 throws <clears throat> over uh, 14 games, and only a few of those were jet sweeps. Uh, so there was a lot to look at. Uh, I like that stuff. Um, maybe I'm a little weird. I have been wanting to do it uh, for a while, and I think originally my plan was maybe drop it like before next season as like a jumping forward point into the 2020 season. But now I have all this time, in, uh, free time in my hands, so I figured I might as well do it now. So over the last, uh, say, three days – maybe two and a half days, I went back through and watched every game. I finished it off. We're recording on Tuesday. I finished it off Tuesday morning. I watched uh, the Big Ten Championship and the Fiesta Bowl. And I will have everything broken down, sort of like where he threw the ball, where he was most successful, any tendencies that stuck out, um, some stuff I think about like routes and and things Ohio State relied on, and, and basically like taking all that information and synthesizing it and then writing about where I think Justin Fields might be able to go uh, next year and beyond as a passer. But uh, spoiler, he was really good last year. <laughs> it was like one of those things where you go back and watch it all again, and maybe like in the moment you don't appreciate how good it is because it's all sort of happening very fast and there's other, other things to worry about. But when you're, like, you're just watching him, there are certainly areas where he can grow up. Man, he is so good. Some people were pretty upset that we didn't honorable mention him on the uh, numbers post at number one. We should have. That was a mistake. We should have. He's a Heisman finalist. Well, I agree. Yeah, we should have done it. I mean, we had other people on the list winning their their number based on one total year. If you're a Heisman finalist, regardless of what happens, you're in that you're in the honorable mention. I think it's just easy to look past uh, some of the people um, that are currently on the team. But this brings us to a perfect segue to our first question, Bill. So how about we do that? Okay, let's do it. Um, because you put Wyatt Davis as uh, honorable mention at 52, correct? I did. Yes. So the question here from Josh C. is, besides Justin Fields, because I think he may be an obvious choice, who are your early season favorites for All-American for the Buckeyes? Um, I'm thinking Sean Wade, possibly Chris Olave, and one or two offensive line guys. So I thought this might be a good segue for you to kind of give some people some insight in why you uh, thought it was, felt strongly enough to put Wyatt Davis in at number 52 and um, just your overall outlook of like what he is and what he could be next year. So this this had some projection baked into it and and maybe that was the wrong way to handle this particular story we did about the best guys to wear each number but 
I always try to keep in my mind, like, if you are considered the best at what you do, then you should be considered for this list. Whether you were considered that when you played or whether you consider that now. Like, I think Wyatt Davis is the best interior offensive lineman in the country. I don't know if he's the best offensive lineman. I haven't looked at it all that, that closely. But I think he's the best interior offensive lineman in the country. And had he come out in the draft this year, I think he's at worst a second-round draft pick. I, I think that highly of him. So I think he's going to be an All-American next year appearing on several lists so that's why i put him here i think he's an obvious one and we're talking about guys who could be all americans next year obviously fields is in that conversation like the questioner had mentioned but i think maybe the next most obvious guy is wyatt davis because anytime you're in conversation for best player at your position you're obviously in that all-american conversation now offensive guards interior line play like center has its own award and i think the atlin trophy Again, I'm making this up probably more often than not goes to tackles more than it does to guards. And I don't know if Wyatt Davis would be in that conversation just because of that. But I think just like pure football player, and I said this last week when we did our draft, I think he, I would listen to an argument for Justin Fields. I think Wyatt Davis might be the best football player on the roster. Just a combination of like natural gifts, uh, like physical build for the position, intelligence, the mean streak you want out of an offensive lineman. Like I think he is the total package and has lived up to the billing of being the number one guard in the country and a five-star prospect like he was coming out of high school. I really like him. Like I, There have been other offensive linemen they've had that I've liked. I like Decker, I like Billy Price, I like Pat Elfline. I don't think any of these guys um, come close really to being just sort of as naturally talented as Wyatt Davis is. Yeah, that's that's a really good reminder um, because I just wanted to make this point. Um, as we went through the research, and there are a lot of really great football players who have played at Ohio State, so picking one player for every number was a pretty tough task, and I think people uh, have a lot of disagreements with the way that we pick some things, and that was kind of the design of the post, but you know what I learned by doing that the most, Bill, is how freaking hard it is to become an All-American. Yeah. Like, some of the best players in Ohio State history never were All-Americans, because, you know, and I know that over the years that becoming an All-American the the benchmark for what that means has expanded because publications have expanded and there's more places that have All-American teams. I feel like the Athletic has an All-American team and Ohio State recognizes. Would they get a tree for the Athletic All-American team? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. It's supposed to be any reputable first-team All-American selection gets a tree in Buckeye Grove. I would think that the Athletic would rise to that level. Yeah, because I think like I in mean, the past, I think like CBS Sports in the past has gotten guys a tree, right? And like I just I use the athletic as an example of just explaining how more publications, more media equals more opportunity to get a tree. But like a guy like Maurice Claret didn't get one, and I thought that was crazy. And then Bill's like, "Well, Willis McGahee and Larry Johnson um, had great years that year," and it's like, "Oh, well." That's why he didn't get named All-American. But it's just like maybe nowadays, if Maurice Claret and those two other guys were playing, maybe Claret would have gotten one-on-one list somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just easier to do it now. But um, All-American, I, I pulled up a list when I um, went through these questions, Bill, and I found a list from Athlon Sports that ranks the top 50 players for next year, just kind of as a litmus test to kind of see like who they think is on that list. Um, Justin Fields is number two overall behind Trevor Lawrence, which I thought was interesting and will continue to be a storyline in college football. Um, number 12 was Wyatt Davis, so you're correct wow. in that assessment. And then, of course, um, number 19 is Sean Wade, which I think is the other obvious uh, choice here. Um, obviously, there's some things to figure out with him in terms of um, moving from um, nickel corner and you know in the middle of the field to kind of moving outside and being more aggressive. Um, but I do think that... He was a potential top three round pick already this year, comes back, um, isn't going to beat up his body as much in practice, and you know is going to be a really great quarterback. Um, and I do believe that he will have a chance to become an All-American, especially because I think that All-American lists have some bias against veteran players too. I mean, for veteran, not against. So like, if you're a, a junior or a senior and you've paid your dues, I think voters like look at them a little bit differently, don't you? I do, yes. And I, I think with Sean Wade, he also would benefit, and it's not to say he wouldn't be deserving because I think he's going to be one of the better corners in the country. He will benefit from the uh, track record, I guess is the way to put it, of Ohio State corners recently. Like Jeff Okuda was a first-team All-American last year despite not being super productive if you just looked at counting stats because teams didn't throw his way. And sometimes with these lists and these awards, I think stats kind of rule the day, and, and that's not always the best way to go about it. But even if Sean Wade has a year where 
he doesn't have more than you know two or three interceptions, or maybe he only has you know eight or nine pass deflections. I think people know to look at Ohio State's secondary now when they're trying to figure out who the sec- who the All American should be at that that cornerback position. So he'll even if he doesn't have a monster season counting stats wise, I think eyeballs will still go in his direction just because of where he's at. Can I say that I just think stats are stupid? That's it. Sixty percent of stats are made. I up I think they're offhand. stupid. Yeah, sixty-five percent of stats are made up offhand. No, I just I think that you can use stats and apply them to make your point. And like I've learned through my two and a half week long meltdown about whether or not talent matters in college football, which I still don't understand how that's a debate, but <laughs> it is a debate apparently. And the way people twist numbers, it it just drives you insane. And didn't Kevin Wilson have a really funny um, quote about that somewhere? He said like. Stats are for losers and water boys or something like that. I don't know. I thought it was funny. Like, like I was trying to find it just now. I couldn't. Fi- I couldn't find it in Google, but it was a really funny quote. And it just like, just dating back to like even that Maurice Claret discussion that you and I had briefly yesterday. Um, if you watched him with your eyes, you knew he was one of the best players in college football. I don't care what his stats mm-hmm. said. He missed games. Um, he might not have matched up with McGahee. And I know McGahee was like a freaking robot that year, and I'm not trying to pretend like he was better or is better, but I'm just saying if you watched Maurice Claret as an Ohio State football fan, he is probably one of the top ten players that would jump out of your mind in terms of game changer and certainly deserve to be recognized on that list. Um, and I think this is a really good transition. And, you know, this hosting thing's a little bit easier, I think, Bill, when there are natural transitions. But, Can I mention one other uh, guy Gene before Lee. we move on from uh, Yeah, yeah, Americans? yeah, yeah, please. Uh, I think uh, Josh Myers would be in that consideration too because he's going to be in the Remington Trophy conversation for the entire year. So if he's up for best center in the country, he'll certainly be up for first-team All-American at that position too. I know we kind of talked about this a little bit last week um, when we did our little quick draft and I think I might have reached for Munford a little bit, but like, where is he at in that discussion? If he, if if Thayer Munford is healthy, um, is he that good in your mind, or do you think he's a step behind those other two guys? I think he's that good. If you start at Ohio State as a true sophomore on the offensive line, which is what Thayer Munford did, yeah, I would I would think that you're that talented. I don't know what the rest of the tackle class looks like um, relative to Thayer, and I'm, and first and foremost, that is he's got to get healthy and play at a high level for the entire year. And I think he'd tell you last year he didn't do that, and it's not it's not that he was bad. He was just hurt, and he had, I think he played through some pretty significant pain at times, and, and sometimes that shows up when you're when you're watching a guy try to block for you know 60, 70, 80 snaps a game. But if he's healthy, sure, I think I think he's on that level too. He's not like I think Wyatt Davis will probably end up being a unanimous All American at the very least, consensus All American. Which is uh, there's five lists that are recognized for that status. If you're on all five, you're unanimous. If you're on three, you're consensus. I think Wyatt Davis is in that conversation, and Josh Myers probably is too. I don't know if Thayer's that level, but you mentioned there are a lot of first-team lists. Um, if Thayer's healthy, I think he could find himself on one because people. it's hard to pick offensive linemen for those things. I've done them in the past a couple times. It's hard to, to – basically, any position doesn't have stats. It's hard to figure out who should be in those slots. So you tend to look at, one, like draft projections, and two, just who the best teams are. And if you're the starting left tackle at Ohio State and you're a multi-year starting left tackle at Ohio State and a really good offense, uh, you have a shot to be a first-team All-American. To the segue now, Bill. <laughs> numbers, the, one of the questions we got from Gene Nelly, our guy Gene Nelly, who's always very engaged and we appreciate him. Um, you pick a punter as the, number one, <laughs> uh, as the best number one in team history. Please expand on that discussion. I would take both Fields and Okuda over the punter. And I just was like, Okuda, when we started this list, we started with one naturally. And I was like, all right, this is easy. One's Okuda. What's next? And Bill's like, oh, hold on there, big fella. <laughs> so you want to explain? I mean, it's what you said is perfect sense. And I think that um, I would, if I could go back and make the list again, the only change I would make would be putting Fields as the honorable mention. But I do think after reading about Sladani that he is the number one player to wear number one in Ohio State history, one of um, eight three-time All-Americans in program history and considered one of the best players at his position. I mean, I basically just covered it, but it's one thing to be a bit, one of the best defensive backs in Ohio State history like Oguda is. Like, I think Sladani is considered one of the best punters in general in the sports history. Is that your thinking too? It is, and I get it, it, I get it's a funny thing. And there were three punters on the list because, of course, there were because I had a hand in it. Um, I think they were all justified. Fist in it. <laughs> I think they were all justified. <laughs> um, 
Tom Skladany, who we had at number one, like you said, is one of just a handful of three-time All-Americans in the history of Ohio State football. Like, think of how long Ohio State's been playing football and how many talented players they've had. There have been eight three-time first-team All-Americans, and this guy's one of them. And, like, some of those guys played before, like, the 50s, and I don't like it. Those things are a little harder to calibrate. I get it. He's a punter, but he is in the conversation for, like, best to ever do it. If, like, I think I said this to you, and I think you might have put it in the story. It's like, if the Ray guy, if Ray guy didn't exist then maybe the award is called the Tom Sladani Award. I think like that's how good he was. And like, I didn't watch him play. I just looked up his stats and I read about him because I wasn't alive when he played. But I can read, and I know how good he was. And, of course, Jeff Okuda and Justin Fields and every other person we had, Boom Heron, I think we had listed there. Like, those guys are great football players. And if we're building a football team, I think I would pick every single one of those guys before I picked a punter. Because why would I pick a punter first? Actually, I might pick a punter first. Yeah, no. I mean, what are you, lying to the people now? I mean, what's going yeah, on here? But I think when we did this exercise... You had to honor like all-time greatness in whatever form that took, and this guy is an all-time great college punter. So I I thought it would be like borderline disrespectful to not have him there. And also, we wanted to strike a balance too, because obviously our visions of greatness, and that's a thing too. Um, I'm 32 years old. What are you? 30. 31. 31. We only have a scope of what we've covered for, you know, going back 10 years um, total uh, in terms of the furthest distance back that we actually saw with our own eyes. Like, if you saw an awesome run in 1974, it wasn't mean that the, the, the run wasn't awesome. It just means that we, even though we might have seen videos of it or heard about it or know the stories, never got to witness the greatness itself. So anytime you could make an argument for a player for before our era, before we were born, I think we wanted to do that because it would have been so easy just to pick all players who played for Urban Meyer and been done with it. Um, and Jeff Okuda is one of the best corners that ever played at Ohio State. His season last year was incredible. And, and part of the problem with this list is that you can only pick one, and if you don't pick somebody else, people get personally offended that you don't think that person's great. And it's like, no, Jeff Okuda was still great. It just... For the purposes of this list, the hardware and, you know, being one of eight people and his legend in the entire game of college football took precedent over uh, a guy who didn't win the national award at his position this year. So, you know, no offense to anybody. It's just it's like an impossible task. Um, And I think punter um, at times and there were a few clips I saw of B.J. Sander, who was also on our list at number 21. And somebody's like, well, what about Paris Campbell? It's the same discussion. B.J. Sander won a national award. He won the Ray Guy Award. Um, Paris Campbell didn't win a national award. Like I, Sometimes it was as open as shut at that. So um, I do think that it was an interesting discussion, um, and I think I've got another good segue here, Bill. Um, based on greatness that we've witnessed, um, we had an awesome question, and I forgot to write this person's name down who asked it, so let me go find it real quick. But the question is um, – and. I'll, most athletic play you've ever witnessed in your time covering Ohio State. Um, what was the most? Um, what is your your vote for that, Bill? I have it. It was Dylan Jay who asked that question. It was just a very good question. Okay, cool. Man, most athletic play. Uh, when I read that question, the very first thing that popped into my head uh, was Malik Hooker's interception in the 2016 Fiesta Bowl when uh, yes. Deshaun Watson put it on a dime to Hunter Renfro. It had to be forty, at least forty yards downfield. It was just a great throw, and Renfro, Renfro at the time, looked like he was open. And then Malik Hooker, I think he might have come from the far hash. Maybe it was the middle of the field. He came from the far hash. I saw it with my to, eyes. I'll never to the it. pylon, yeah. basically in front of the end zone, and just like snatched it out of the air. And he did that a couple times that year. He did it against Bowling Green as well. And he had that one where he like tipped it up to himself and caught it. Like he did a lot of crazy things that year. But to get from where he started to where he ended up catching the ball, like picking off Deshaun Watson like on that stage. That was crazy. So that was the first play I thought of. I'm sure there are others, but that was the first one that popped into my mind. That one is on my list, um, and I go back. Uh, I've been covering Ohio State since 2009, so I've got a few years on him. The most athletic play I think I've ever seen, two popped into my head. One was the one-yard touchdown run versus Penn mm. State that Braxton Miller had. I was at that game. I was covering Penn State. Um, so you did see I did it. see that. That counts. Yes. I wasn't covering Ohio State. I was covering um, Penn State, but I saw it. And I went back and I watched the YouTube video before I, I wrote it down just to make sure. And it, it was as crazy watching the YouTube video as it was in person. But it was crazier in person because it looked like he was about to get dropped for four yards. He makes one. I mean, I've never seen anybody more 
able to hesitate and juke people out of their pants the way that Braxton did. And even watching some classic Ohio State games on YouTube while I've been bored during the quarantine, the way he changes directions and just the, even the most subtle movements and the guys on his knees, it's unbelievable. And the other one, Bill, that I I, I picked, in, and this is the total play, was the um, reverse pass or the, 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 the pass against Alabama um, that Evan Spencer made. It was one of the best passes. It was the only place that he could have put the ball and the fact that he's a wide receiver and doesn't throw the ball like that regularly, I think is the perfect illustration of athleticism because he just was able to do that. And the catch that Michael had um, to contort his body, catch it, and get this foot foot down, I thought that was single-handedly one of the best plays I've ever seen in my life. Um, I don't know if that would count or, or it would even come to your mind when thinking about most, most athletic, but everything that had to come together um, for that play to work, the opponent, the stage, everything about it, I thought that was probably that would probably be my pick even more than Braxton. That's a good one. I, I didn't immediately think of that, but it's a good point to make about a guy like Evan. It was Evan Spencer, right? I want to make sure I have all the names right. Yeah, a guy like Evan Spencer yeah. being put in a in a uncomfortable position, has to do something he doesn't normally do, and then like executing it perfectly, and then the catch by Thomas, like you said, that's a pretty good one. Um, I might I might change mine to that only because of what like the, what that play also meant for Ohio State going forward. Like Malik Cooker's interception was awesome, but like in the end, it didn't matter. It mattered for him. I think to even further solidify that he was the best safety in the country that year, but the the reverse pass touchdown like changed the changed the Sugar Bowl, and then Ohio State won the winter national title. That's a pretty good one. The Braxton one's good too. I didn't think of that because I wasn't covering Ohio State at the time, but I don't know. Has there been a more uh, athletic one yard play in like the history of football? <laughs> I mean, I don't. You don't see a lot of one yard touchdown highlights, um, but I, I think that Braxton did things like that. Um, at least once a game. Didn't he have a it crazy one? To be, didn't he have a crazy one? I wasn't covering the team in uh, 2013 against Cal, or not Cal? Was it 2013 against Cal? No, he didn't play in that game. You know, they all kind of run. To, I mean, I think he did play in that game. Maybe it was. I think he like ran for an 80 yard touchdown, like on the first drive, yeah. if my memories. He had a but lot like of just, yeah. But I, I just like the idea of. I was just watching. In the other room, um, before we started this, the 2012 Michigan State game that Ohio State won 17-16, and like on the first drive, Braxton runs right, like hesitates, makes somebody miss, and then hits the the other direction and gets a 12-yard gain, and just by embarrassing people by himself. Then it's like that's the reason why over the years my obsession with him has been as Ohio State's best quarterback of the Urban Meyer era has been kind of hard to listen to, but at the same time, it's just like how many plays did he get 12 yards that people will forget forever. Um, it was 2012. It, just, it was 2012 it, against Cal. He made. I'm watching it right now. And then what was it that he made? One, two, three. Three guys missed like within one yard of the line, and then ran for a 50 yard touchdown. Yeah, um, I'm going to Google that right now just for fun. You all should do that with us. Um, but yeah, um, and there've been a lot because like the thing about the Malik Hooker um, interception against Clemson is that he had like a better one I think against Bowling Green the year where he like tipped it up in the air, fell on his back, and caught it. Um, he had a crazy interception in the spring game. Um, that doesn't count because it was in the spring game. And then uh, I think Jeff Okuda had one on his back this year too that might also make that list. I mean, there's been a lot of things. You want to know another sneaky one that nobody would ever think of? And um, this was in 2011 when Ohio State was playing at Miami. Uh, Jonathan Hankins was a nose guard at the time. And he there was a sweep to the left and it was on the right hash. And he um, engaged his blocker, got um, off the block, and then ran 45 yards across the entire field and made the tackle on the running back on the sweep. And then after he hit the guy, he, like, jumped up like Michael Jackson. Like, And it's like, is this guy not 320 pounds? And I think there a lot of times when you think about athleticism, um, it's so much easier to think about the position players and the fast, sexy touchdowns that um, – you know, you remember forever, but the amount of athleticism that Ohio State has in terms of pure talent in the trenches on both sides of the ball is also one of the catalysts for the reason why they never really lose. And I think it's just important to kind of drive that point home, Bill. And as an offensive line enthusiast, I think you can agree there is a certain sense of um, agility and flexibility and all the things that go along with being a superior athlete. Even, like, that's why Paris Johnson is who he is, right? 
It is. And I wrote a story about this before the Fiesta Bowl about Ohio State's interior offensive line. And, and one of the reasons that they were such a good running team last year is because of how much diversity they had in their run game, which was born out of the fact that their offensive linemen were really athletic. It can kind of do whatever you ask them to do. They were super strong. You can run up inside, but then you could run stretch plays and outside zone and all that stuff. And then when those guys got in space, they created a lot of movement. And J.K. Dobbins got a lot off of that. He was really good at finding those creases and extending them for more. But this collection of offensive linemen they had last year, particularly the three interior guys, had to have been the most, among the most athletic um, that Ohio State's ever had. And like you can ask former player, Ohio State players that too, and I think they tell you the same thing. And, and if you look forward, the idea of substituting out Jonah Jackson, who was very good, for Harry Miller, like, I think they could be even better next year. And there's a lot of that stuff that gets overlooked. Tommy Togiai had a play against Northwestern where the, the quarterback got out and Togi, I ran from the opposite hash and planted the guy on the sideline and like beat him to the spot. And like he wasn't the most fleetest of foot quarterback, but Tommy Togi has a 300 pound offensive lineman. Like he was faster than that dude. And he ran him down on the sideline and made a great play. So a lot of that stuff happens a lot. You're not, I don't think you were trained to look for it, but I would, especially Ohio State fans, when you're watching the game and you get into some of these games where it's just sort of ho hum, they're going through the motions and, and beating some of these teams the way they can get sometimes. Watch the guys up front and on both sides of the ball and, and try to find an appreciation for how athletic they are because it does get overlooked. There are so many just awesome segues here, Bill. <laughs> we're, just, we're just humming along, aren't we? Um, this, well, you know what? Here, this is actually a better question because we were talking a little bit about offensive line and athleticism. Um, what will the offensive scheme look like, Bill, um, based on this offensive line that they have that we've talked about quite a bit on this podcast now? This question's from Ryan B. The offensive line lends itself to a 2019 rushing attack, but fields plus the receivers also reminds me of 18 where there's a lot of skill position um, talent. Will Ryan Day, What will Ryan Day's true preference be this year? Do you think he'll still rely on the run, or do you think things are going to you know, look a little bit differently? Because they've got the tools to do both. They do have the tools to do both. I, I still question whether or not they have the individual talent at running back to be quite as dynamic as they were last year. It was a lot of offensive line, and their offensive line is going to be very good, if not better, this year um, than it was last year. But you, the trade-off is you don't have J.K. Dobbins anymore. And I really can't stress enough how important his vision and ability to find those creases quickly uh, was to their overall offensive rushing success. And it's not to say that Trey Sermon won't do it or, or Marcus Crowley won't do it. I just don't think they do it as well as J.K. So I think you need to brace yourself maybe for a little bit that, that it looks a little bit different. Now, I think they still want to run the ball. I don't expect their run game to look totally different. I, I like the, the plays that they ran, I still think, can lend themselves to the, the, the strengths of these guys. Trey Sermon and Oklahoma's run game, is another very diverse kind of kind of run, rushing attack. He's experienced doing everything, so he can do whatever Ohio State asked him to do. He played in a zone-based scheme when he was in high school. Uh, so I think a lot of that looks the same. What could be different, or what I'm anticipating might be a little different, is the passing game. And it's this sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, me charting Justin Fields' passes last year and the kind of routes they were running. I haven't added this up yet, and I'm excited to do it. But he had to have gotten I – would, I would venture to say he got – at least half of his yards, if not more, last year on hitches and out routes within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage because every team they played... Don't blow your story, Bill. I haven't counted it up yet, so I, that's that's a guess. Okay, I haven't counted okay. It up yet. It's a guess. <laughs> um, but teams they played were so terrified of getting beat over the top by Ohio State speed at receiver that they just bailed every time. And probably Justin Fields are too. They just bailed every time. And these guys were getting free access off the line of scrimmage and a smart coach will take that every time. And Ryan day did more often than not. So they got a lot out of that. And I'm wondering how they expand upon that now. And a lot of it goes to Justin Fields growth sort of in the pocket and making progressions. And I did think there was some strong evidence to support that he was growing in that way over the latter part of the season. And I'll illustrate some of that in, in my story, but uh, the, the crossing packages that we saw with Dwayne Haskins two years ago, they weren't really there. They were like it was very rare that we saw some of that stuff. And I wrote about that last year. It's just like your your personnel dictates it, your quarterback skill set dictates it. And I just don't know if Justin Fields was terribly comfortable throwing the ball over the middle middle of the field the way that Dwayne Haskins was two years ago. So I think that's growth. Um, and and where you can see the offense expand too is working the middle of the field a little more. And then maybe maybe not taking more deep shots because I think they were fairly consistent in taking their deep shots, but Justin Fields sort of calibrating that a little better and not missing as many throws down the field or getting more on the same page 
with their receivers and, and being a little more efficient throwing the ball down the field than they were a year ago. Bill, I'm going to ask you a question that you probably would tell me off the air that we're not going to discuss, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, just briefly, because I think it's something that we should address um, to people who follow the podcast and follow our work. Um, Ginelli again asked, are you guys feeling excited or optimistic about the 2020 college football season? Can't speak for anybody, but as a fan, I'm finding it hard to get excited when I don't know if there will actually be one. How common do you think that feeling is right now? Um, and I know neither of us are coronavirus experts or what's going to happen in three months, and we don't want to try to pretend to be. But um, what do you think the sentiment is with the fan base and you know where people are right now, considering the fact that there still is some uncertainty about whether or not they're actually going to play this football season? Genelli is definitely not alone in that feeling. I think there are a lot of people who feel that way. I tend to take the more optimistic slant on those kind of things, and maybe that makes me a fool for doing so. So I've not really entertained much the idea that there won't be a season. I think there's going to be a football season in 2020. When it's played, what it looks like, I couldn't tell you. I haven't the faintest idea, and I don't think really anybody does. But I, I think there's going to be football next year. I'm not super worried about that. Um, I'm a little worried about uh, worry isn't the right word, but but I because uh, there are more important things in the world to worry about. But I am skeptical of the idea of the season starting on time or being a college football season as we've come to know it. I think things will look a little different next year. But I, it's normal to to you know be worried about those kind of things. I just uh, it's not fun. I think it creates a lot of anxiety. Um, I think in the meantime we can go forward as if there's going to be a season and keep talking about it like there's going to be one. And then when there's not, we can adjust and and move on from there. But I don't like to uh, traffic in things that produce anxiety or make people sad or a a bummer. So um, that's why I haven't really entertained that stuff all that much. And it's perfectly reasonable to be uncertain or sad um, about the potential that there is no football. Like nobody is – should be made to feel bad that, you know, there are a lot of terrible things that are happening right now in the world. Um, in terms of you still feeling bad about missing out potentially on your hobby. Like, obviously we both recognize that there are a lot of things that are more important than football, but we also would really like there to be a season as well, considering this is our job. So, um, overall, like somebody else asked Sam S, uh, over under on how many games are going to be played this year. I don't know that we want to play that game. Um, but I do think that it's a very normal sentiment to be kind of uh, unsure about where things are headed. And I also think that it's completely reasonable and rational to be sad that your hobby could, you know, be affected by something terrible, even if there are more important, terrible things happening in the world. So um, that's all we're probably going to talk about um, in terms of, you know, Ohio State's football season moving forward, because again, neither of us are experts on that. And I think we'll just wait to see what actually happens. Um, we are going to proceed like there is one. We're going to continue to talk and write about Ohio State football. And uh, we just want to thank you um, again for continuing to subscribe if you do. And if you don't, then no thank yous to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you can get a thank you by subscribing. Um, and we're just going to try to make the best of this, uh, you know, together. So. Anyway, sorry, I hope you're not mad at me, Bill, but I just kind of felt like it had to be kind of addressed one time. Not mad. And as a host, I get to uh, I get to make that my prerogative, uh, right? That's part of the benefits. That's right. You get to drive this boat. I get to drive the boat. Okay, so now let's go back to real football. Um, Landis, taking a, this one is from Ryan H. Taking a look at the Buckeyes versus Ohio State in the last three seasons, two of them were nail biters. In your opinion, which game, 22, uh, 2017 or 2018, was a more electrifying victory for the Buckeyes. Um, and then there's a second part to the question, but do you remember both of them? 2017, yeah, that was the game that was here, and JT played like a madman at the end of the game. And then 18 was the game that was there, and Dwayne Haskins was the quarterback, and they started throwing some screens, and then KJ Hill scored a game-winning touchdown, right? I have those right? Yes, you're right. Uh, in both times, Ohio State won by one point. Ohio State won 27-26 on the road um, in 2018, and um, Ohio State won at home the year before in 2017, 39-38. We're talking about I mean, they're both very similar. I think you might have said Ohio State versus Ohio State. We're talking about Ohio State versus Penn State, just to be clear. Ohio State versus Penn State in 17 and 18, sorry, yes. Both of which Ohio State um, came back from behind to win by a point. Um, Which one do I think was more impressive? Yeah, and I, I, I'll i go first just to 
give you some time to um, think about this, but I think the uh, 2018 game is um, more impressive because Ben Victor made a catch that I didn't know that he was physically capable of making, and I thought they were dead on the road. Um, it was early enough in the season where Ohio State still um, seemed like one of the best teams in college football, but I will say, and I've said this multiple times, that I think that Penn State is the loudest stadium I've ever been in. And again, um, I know that every time I'm on the road for this job, I'm there because the other team is hosting Ohio State, and Ohio State always gets the best crowds and the best environments. But to do that in a whiteout at Penn State at night, um, for players to step up in a way that I wasn't even sure they were physically capable of doing, um, to keep a perfect season alive and then get a stop, and I mean, everything that went into it. I mean, both games were incredible. They were both very similar, (laughs) both very similarly um, heartbreaking for Penn State, but Ohio State had already lost a game in 2017, if I'm remembering correctly. In 2018, he kept an undefeated season alive at night on the road. I would definitely pick 2018 because, I mean, I was writing stories that they were dead already, um, and I don't necessarily think that was the case um, at home because you never know what's going to happen at home. But, yeah, JT probably had one of the best games of his career in 18, so I hope I vamped enough to let you uh, take the floor now. I think the 2018 game, like it meant more. It for sure, it for sure meant more at the time, and like they ended up losing at Purdue, so I guess it didn't mean that much in the end. But in the moment, to win on the road, to stay undefeated, um, Ohio State was the higher ranked team that year. I think that has to be the most impressive win. But in 2017, like they were down 21 to three to a good, really good Penn State team in in 2017. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was Franklin's best team, 17 or 16. Franklin's best team. Maybe it was 17, even though they won a Big Ten in 16. They were down 21 to three. Like Saquon Barkley returning opening kick for a touchdown, and like I like I thought that Ohio State was like cruising for a beatdown in that game after they had they had lost to Oklahoma earlier that year. That got kind of ugly toward the end, and there so that seed was already planted in your head. Like this team is capable of losing in a fashion that is lopsided, and they were down 21 to three early in the second quarter at home to a good Penn State team that had beaten them the year before. And I was like, this is it. This is it's happening again. And then the fourth quarter comeback, I don't know the stats um, off the top of my head. They were down 35-20 going into the fourth quarter. And I, th- I think JT completed his last 14 passes, or maybe it was 13-14. But it was the best he's ever played in that fourth quarter against Penn State. So I remember that one more. Like when I think back on on the best games that I've covered, I remember that one before. I remember the 2018 game just because of how crazy it was. Because 18 was like... JT was 13 for 13 for 170 yards in the fourth quarter of that game. out of his mind. So good. And then the next week was not good. Um, But 18, like neither team was like playing all that well. And Ohio State kind of figured some stuff out. And they won late in a really hard place to win. But I thought that that 17 was a crazier game. Um, But in terms of what it meant, I think it has to be 18. And additionally, he said, which one of these games is more important in your opinion to in terms of national perception of Ohio State, uh, in terms of being um, compared to Alabama or Clemson. And I'm not necessarily sure one or the other has more of an impact because Ohio State missed the playoff both years anyway. Um, And both years they lost to a team they shouldn't have lost to. Um, Ohio State, did that happen already Um, that year in 2017? Did the Iowa game already happen? No, that was they had lost to Oklahoma and then they – Oh, Oklahoma, and then they lost to Iowa. Iowa after. I think Iowa would have been the next week. So what I'll say is, if Ohio State lost twice um, in 17, then I will say that 18 or 17 was more important because the reason why Ohio State continues to be in that discussion in my mind is because it has avoided a dreaded 9-3 and season. So if they would have lost that Penn State game in 17, um, that would have put them into the land of mediocrity that this program hasn't seen in almost a decade. So... Um, but in terms of Ohio State's positioning on the in the conversation with Alabama and Clemson, I think that's predicated solely on uh, national pre- um, perception and, and how recently you've been playing in the playoff. And you know, personally, I think there was a huge gap between the top two programs in America and Ohio State heading into last year. And I think last year did far more um, for Ohio State than any of those two wins over uh, Penn State did, even though they were they were fun to watch. I agree with all that. I, th- I guess it would be 18. I don't think either one particularly mattered to that narrative all that much, but yeah. 17 was the year. 17, it was funny. I'm just remembering that year now. It was like JT, all, all I ever wanted to see from JT was like 
be the guy who, like, in the two-minute drill isn't afraid to rip the ball. Like, just be that guy all the time. And then in the fourth quarter against Penn State when they were down by two scores, he's like, I'm going to let this thing fly. I was like, holy shit, look at JT throw this ball around the yard. He's letting it rip all over the place. And then they go to Iowa the next week, and it's like, JT, stop letting it rip because all you're doing is throwing interceptions, and you're losing to Iowa. So it was funny to, like, find watch him finally do the thing everybody wanted to do in the next week. He's like, watch this shit. Pick. Like, oh. I just watched the Braxton Miller uh, touchdown run against Cal in 2000, whatever it was, um, on YouTube. And name one other player in Ohio State that you've seen that could have made that play. I don't know if there is one. From a, just an agility uh, make somebody miss standpoint. He was gifted beyond anything that we've ever seen at this at this university, in my opinion. I think the closest. I don't even know who I. Who, yeah, the closest to, like, Curtis Samuel, J.K. Dobbins. Maybe a healthy Dontre Wilson. Um, Justin Fields has a little bit of that, but not close to that level. Like, no one's really close to him. Yeah, I, I just – the way he wiggles, the way he moves his shoulders, and the, I, 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 can't, I can't get over how good he was. Okay, um, how about some more Penn State, Bill? You ever get enough of Penn State? Why are there so many Penn State um, questions? I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> well, I think it's possible because on Monday night, one of the networks was airing one of the Ohio State, the 2017 Ohio State Penn State game, and Urban was tweeting about it during the game. Oh. And like when Saquon Barkley took it, the opening kickoff to the house, Urban tweeted or said on Fox or something that he was he took his headset and went off to the sideline to go fire the kickoff team coach until he realized it was him. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. Um, but I think that might be the reason. But. Anyway, he said, I know Fryermuth, a.k.a. Baby Gronk, <laughs> at the time, is the best tight end in the conference. Um, and this is from Jamie S. Um, is there a big chance that changes because Jeremy Ruckert becomes the biggest weapon in pass-catching game as a tight end in the Big Ten? Um, and that's from Jamie S. And then somebody said, uh, Cole F. added, after uh, uh, Lave and Garrett Wilson, will Jeremy Ruckert be the third most productive pass catcher for Ohio State this year? He just uh, has as much talent and so much more experience than incoming freshman receivers. Um, none of the other tight ends have his ceiling athletically. Seems like he's being underhyped. And the thing I wanted to make sure that everybody knew in terms of Baby Gronk was that Fryer Muth is 6'5", 256 pounds, and Ruckert is listed at 6'5", 253. So they are very similar in terms of body type. Um and that catch that Ruckert made in the Big Ten Championship game, I think, is his potential. This was a five-star prospect, a guy that I thought really had a chance to change the way that Ohio State just uses the tight end position be- to begin with. But I think the reason why you might feel he's underhyped is because people are just tired of writing about it. Um, for the last ten years, people, uh, reporters, and it's become a running joke, will the tight end catch more passes? And it just never happens. And I think there's so much you can do with an athletic tight end, but... I will say this, if there was ever a coach that I would think would scheme up to take advantage of that, I would think it's Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson. But the other thing, too, is that Kevin Wilson is also has Luke Farrell and some other tight ends, and that might be the deepest position in, in the um, offensive game planning room. So, I don't know. It's kind of a complicated question. I'll hand it over to our X's and O's genius now. Bill, go ahead. I was looking up how many balls tight ends caught last year. So, Rucker caught 14. Farrell only caught seven all year. Rucker had 14 catches, four touchdowns. Rucker or Farrell had seven catches, two touchdowns. Rashad Berry had two receptions. Jake Houseman had two receptions. So let me do quick math. 21, 25 catches for tight for four tight ends last year. I think that number will come up a little bit, but the, the thing that I think is important to remember when we talk about this, and maybe it's a simplistic way of looking at looking at it. I think when you when you consider the idea of throwing the ball to the tight end more, it's more about like areas of the field that you're attacking, and you're when you're talking about tight ends, you're talking about middle of the field. And KJ Hill got like all the work in the middle of the field last year when they threw it there, and two years before that or the year before that, it was KJ Hill and Paris Campbell as your H's, and they played a lot with two H's. And those guys take catches away from tight ends, I think, in those air, those kind of areas where you'd expect those guys to be. And then this coming year, K.J. Hill's gone, but if they're going to put Garrett Wilson in the slot, which I think they will, and I also think Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to be pretty good, and, and who knows what Mookie Cooper might give them. Like, they just keep having these either reliable, like K.J., or dynamic, like Paris, or what I think Garrett might be a combination of both of them in the slot. I just think it makes it hard to take that guy off the field, one, and two, if you're the quarterback, to take your eyes off that guy, even if the tight end is also in the middle of the field open. So 
Will Jeremy Rucker be like Fryermuth? No, I, I don't think he'll be quite as productive. I think you'll see an uptick. I would hope that they find different ways to use him and move him around the formation a little bit because I think maybe a little more than Farrell and, and probably more than most of the tight ends they've had here the last couple of years, he can split out and be really effective just as a receiver. They have, they've done that some, but they haven't done it a ton with him. I hope to see him do it more. But I'm not on the lookout for like Jeremy Rucker, who might go pro after, after this year, is going to have like a 40-catch season. He might have 20, 25. He had 14 last year. But even if he's the third leading receiver on the team, and I don't think he will be, but even if he was, I don't think he'd have something like 50, it's going to be crazy, like 50, 60 catches next year. Bill, I think we could go three hours like Buckeye talk right now. There are so many good questions, and we're already at 45 minutes. I'm getting nervous. I'm going to give you a rapid-fire one. Ready? Yeah, from Duncan C. And this is just one-word answers from both of us. More receiving yards, Fleming, or the rest of the freshman receivers combined? Freshman combined. Freshman combined. Over-under touchdown catches for Cameron Babb this season, Point five. Over. Over. Most sacks, Cooper, Smith, or Friday? Ooh, Smith. Smith. Best wings in Columbus. I'm going to give one answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> Rapid fire, man. Let's go. Best wings in Columbus. See, this is hard because, like, Roosters is, like, the most well-known, and I think it's a solid wing, but it's not the best wing. And, like, Wingstop is good, but it's not really a Columbus joint. It's all over the place. Like, Columbus place with good wings. Uh, Thurman Cafe is pretty good. They got another known for the burgers. Their wings are pretty solid. I've never had Thurman Cafe's wings. They're gigantic. Does wings overcount, or that's a chain? That's too? also a chain. They're also good. I think the best... I think the best wing you can get is Wingstop. Uh, the non-breaded, traditional Parmesan cheese uh, drumstick wing. Um, okay, next. That was quick. If there is no football this season, what's the likelihood that Stroud or Miller starts two oh. years, the other starts one, and we don't see McCord for four years? Robert H. My goodness. <laughs> from, from wings to – I mean, I'll just say I don't think that whether or not there's football is going to impact Stroud and Miller. Um, I think that this person is, is trying to say that there's a chance that this might keep one of them in the program longer. I think that the second that Strouder Miller wins the starting job, the other one's going to leave, and um, they might play for two years, and then McCord might play in the third year. So regardless of whether or not that's the case, I don't know that this is going to – I don't think there's ever going to be a scenario, football or not, where one starts for two, the other one waits to start for one, and then McCord comes in after that. I think it's going to be McCord who – replaces either the Stroud or Miller who becomes the leader of the program. I agree with that because I honestly think the question is kind of assuming that if there is no football next year that whoever wins a starting job out of Stroud or Miller would like stay and play for three years when they wouldn't have to because I don't I guess it's an interesting conversation if there's no football next year would the NFL somehow change its rule? You got to be three years removed from high school to enter the NFL draft. Like, would that rule get changed or like pushed back a year for guys in that class? I don't. I just don't see them doing that. So even if those guys, even if there was no football, and then one of those guys starts, I think you could still assume that they'd start for two years and you'd see McCord in three years. Um, but I, I agree with what you're saying. The thing that's interesting, and like if we're going to go down this road, like let's go down it. One of the things being floated is the potential to play football in the spring. And I have no idea how that would work, the logistics of it. I don't really want to get into all that. But it would bring up interesting questions about what guys like Justin Fields would do if they're going to play college football in the spring so close to the NFL draft. And, like, how far that would bleed into I think people would sit out because they're they're already there. So, like, if there's football in the spring, like, might C.J. Stroud or Jack Miller be the starter in the next football season that happens within a calendar year from now? Like, I don't know. Maybe that's getting too crazy. But I think that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah no, but it's – if you're – I mean, if you were Justin Fields and the, the football season was in the spring, would you play? I wouldn't. I would not. Unless they change the NFL draft or something. I guess it depends on what it would look yeah, like. Yeah, we're way I down. guess it depends on what it would look like. If it's going to look like a normal season and there's a championship that we won at the end and it's not going to bleed into the traditional draft build-up time, like for somehow it's – I don't know how that would even be possible, but – I guess I shouldn't say I personally would not, but I'm also not Justin Fields, and I'm not. I also don't think. I also am really looking forward to seeing the NFL draft and how things go this year without all the bullshit of the combine and how fast did you run the cone drills and watching people rely on tape. And if that were to happen, um, you might play from January into the spring and then get drafted in April without ever having to like, like when I shadowed uh, Terry McLaurin down in Florida two years ago, they weren't even practicing football stuff. Like, he was, like, becoming agile enough to test well, 
which maybe is somewhat applicable to playing football, but like, wouldn't NFL teams rather those kids like run routes for four months rather than like see how high they can jump on a on a um, beanbag so they can get measured the right way? Like, I just feel like it's like a waste of six months of training just to look good at a at a meat market. I think a, but, I think a lot of know, players. My, yeah, I think a lot of players would agree with you too. Um, and they they get that football stuff when they go to these cities and work out for teams in person, or even even on pro days. They still do the athletic testing on pro days too. But that that's the thing that a lot of these guys missed out on. I, I still stand by, and I'm not a scout. I'm basically just regurgitate what smarter people than I do say. Um, I think it could end up being a good thing for NFL teams that they're going to be forced to evaluate evaluate more off of film than get in their own head because some guy ran a fast forty time his underwear. And I get that. <laughs> learning how to jump higher means you can jump higher like but i do think that that's over reliant on the workouts and not so much on tape okay more rapid fire bill ready Mm -hmm. um peter s asked what do you miss most about being forced to stay inside um i think he meant what do you miss most about being able to go outside um i'm i'm realizing as uh, as we're stuck in this i'm like i don't go out enough (laughs) because i saw this question i was like what do i miss what do i miss what do i miss um I think it's a fairly easy I, one. Uh, I just eating in restaurants is my yeah. Opinion. I enjoy. I don't do it enough, but I enjoy going uh, h- hitting a brewery on a nice summer night, sitting outside and having a couple beers. Um, and you can like fake that on your at your house, depending on your situation. But I do. I like the the uh, the camaraderie of doing that, being around the people in your city, drinking some good beers, enjoying nice weather. So that. I don't know if this is going to be the end of brick-and-mortar shopping, um, but, like, I'm walking a ton just to get out of the house um, on trails in Phoenix, and I needed some new running shoes because the shoes I have are, like, creating blisters on my feet, and I miss the ability to go down to the mall and just grab a pair of shoes if you need one without having to buy something on Amazon and waiting seven days for your shoes to arrive. Um, People think that shopping is dead, I think there are certain products and certain times where it's just nice to go to the mall and shop around a little bit. I miss that. Too. I've always liked going to the mall. It's like it's always been like maybe we're, maybe we're the last part, like last generation, where that's a thing, and everyone younger than us disagrees. But I yeah, I enjoy that part of it too. When I was a kid, I always liked that. Like my big thing, my birthday is near Christmas. Everybody and everyone's got money for Christmas, and I would take that money and go to the mall and go shopping and buy Christmas presents for other people because I enjoyed the act of shopping. Yeah, like I worked in the mall. Kids hang out at the mall uh, when they were like I like I used to be like. With my friends, you want to meet at the mall, and like we would just hang out there for a few hours. I don't know if you did that in Philly or not. Yeah, sometimes. Um, cool. All right, fast, rapid fire. Edwin L. Over under nine and a half sacks for Zach Harrison. Under. Under two. Who is second on the team in sacks, and is it over under six and a half? Harrison is second, and it's over. Harrison is second. Who do you think is first? Tyreek Smith. Okay, Tyreek. I was going to say second. Was Tyreek Smith over six and a half sacks? First is Harrison, and they both are like a half sack apart from each other in between eight and eight. Wasn't one of the, oh, which okay. I think would. I was going to say wasn't yeah. one of the rapid fire questions who was going to have the most sacks on the team, but it wasn't. It was who's going to have the most sacks out of those three guys. Okay, and we both said Tyreek Smith. Yeah, okay. got it. That's why I was like Smith, and you said it like that. I was like, well, dude, I don't remember if you said that to me like nine months ago. If I'm like remembering that. When the time comes, who do you think will be the highest two drafted or the Two highest drafted players from each class. He said Fields and Paris Johnson are obvious choices, so I think he means from this class uh, coming up and the class over. But why don't we just change the question to the 2020 recruiting class? Highest drafted guy in the 2020 recruiting class? I think it's got to be Paris Johnson, right? Yeah, but if you exclude him. Um, If you exclude him. I don't know. It's hard. It's making an awfully big projection about. I think I might have said when we did like bold projection, bold predict predictions about the uh, guys in this coming freshman class that Julian Fleming was the top receiver in his recruiting class, and I think he'll be the top receiver in his upcoming draft class. So I'll stick by that. But if C.J. Stroud is really good, like it could be him. Like there's a lot of guys to choose from, but I'll say uh, if I can't say Johnson, I'll say Julian Fleming. Okay, I'll say Jackson Smith and the Jigbo, so we have all three five-star prospects covered. Talent matters. Nice. Um, and that was just my way of making that point. Um, God, I wish we could go to a restaurant right now, huh? 
Where would we go? Which one? Wingstop. Oh, Charlie's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Charlie's is legit. I thought it was fine. We went there. We, you and I went there on our way back from somewhere. Where were we coming back from? I mean, it was the last road trip. We just went. Uh, we were coming back from our uh, oh Indianapolis summit yeah, in Indianapolis. Indianapolis. Yeah, I thought it was fine. Um, and I saw a picture on my Instagram yesterday of somebody who got carryout from Pequod's Pizza in Chicago, um, which was our new number one favorite pizza in Chicago. Um, from when we went to the Northwestern game, we tried this place out, and it was better than the traditional ones, right? I think it's the best. I don't think it's close. I don't like Gino's East or um, Lumanati's really at all. I like, um, what's the other place called? Giordano's. Giordano's, but I think that Pequod's is better. I think that Gino's East crust sucks. I don't even know how that place is still in business. I think <laughs> Lumanati's is fine. I think Giordano's is delicious, and I thought Pequod's was a different type of Chicago-style pizza, but I thought it was the best, and I had some pretty terrible heartburn that night. Anytime the cheese is um, getting caramelized, you're in a good spot. Yeah. Okay, Mark M. Predict how many titles each team wins in the next decade for both Big Ten and National Championship. And he gave me his examples, so we're going to read his examples first. Um, So this is for Big Ten Championships in the next 10 years. Ohio State 6, Penn State 2, Minnesota 1, Wisconsin 1. Which kind of blows my mind. His national champions for the next 10 years, Clemson 3, Alabama 2, Ohio State 2, Georgia 1, Oklahoma 1, Penn State 1. I don't even know where to begin on this. <laughs> this is a pretty impossible question. What blew your, what blew um, your mind about the yeah. Penn State one? Or about the, about the, about about the, the Big Ten one, sorry. I think it's interesting, and maybe it's because this is an Ohio State fan, that if you're going to pick um, teams to win the Big Ten, like leaving Michigan out of at least one I think is nuts. You, know, if they, you, you just have to do it because of what it is. Like, Michigan is far more equipped to win a Big Ten championship than Wisconsin or Minnesota. I get that they are um, on the wrong side of the conference, and Wisconsin and Minnesota might be able to cakewalk their way into the Big Ten championship game and be four quarters away from winning the Big Ten. But, like, I think Ohio State's going to win it eight times. I think Penn State might win it once, and Michigan might win it once. I I, I don't know that there's the West, in my mind, is recruiting well enough to win the Big Ten at, at any point in the next decade. And obviously, 10 years is a long time, and... You know, maybe a hot shot coach or something crazy will happen on the West that changes, but I don't see how Minnesota or Wisconsin's ever going to do it. I think they're going to be able to play in that game, but I don't think they can beat Ohio State when that's the team they're going to have to face more often than not. I like that the giving Minnesota one, um, and if Wisconsin like hasn't been so sort of historically dominant on in its division sort of since the Big Ten championship game started. Uh, maybe I feel feel differently about them, but I would I would think I would give Wisconsin one only because I think they're going to get there most years. So to say that it went one out of ten, or even if it's like one out of eight trips, I don't think is that crazy. Um, I wouldn't give Minnesota one. I think I might give I think I might go like Ohio State seven, Penn State two, Michigan one, and Wisconsin one. So then, if you would do that, then I think the national champions that Mark mentioned. Clemson 3, Bama 2, Ohio State 2, Georgia 1, Oklahoma 1, and Penn State 1 would make sense under your umbrella. Because if Ohio, if Penn State wins the Big Ten twice in the next 10 years, they're going to go to the playoff one of those years. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they won the Big Ten, and I, it actually was misfortune for James Franklin. The year that they won the Big Ten, Ohio State still got picked over them, despite losing the head-to-head matchup because they had a second loss. Um, but more often than not, the Big Ten champion, if they're a one-loss Big Ten champion, should be in the playoff. Um, I just don't see the West winning it at all. I think Clemson winning three, Alabama winning two, and Ohio State winning two out of the next ten makes sense. I need you. You need to put the other teams in in the discussion that are recruiting at the highest level. I think you need to put LSU in there, um, maybe even over Oklahoma because mm-hmm. they're more talented and more equipped to do it. Um, Georgia is signing more five stars than any team in the country right now, so I think that you might even be able to bump them up to two. Um, and then if you want to give one to Penn State. Um, I think that would be interesting. I'm not sure that that team is equipped um, to win a, a championship with the talent that they have on their roster. Um, but, you know, to me, I think it'd be maybe Clemson 3, Alabama 2, Ohio State 2 or 3, Georgia 2, and Oklahoma 1 maybe. Uh, but I, like, I'm a slave to the recruiting rankings, and right now the, there's a huge gap between the top four and the, and the bottom six of the top ten. To be in this conversation, you have to get a, you have to be able to get a, a quarterback and an NFL quarterback. I think I just think that's where we are right now. 
So Clemson's got Trevor Lawrence, and then DJ Uyangalele is coming in behind him. Um, Did you pronounce that so smoothly because you practiced? I like saying his name, yeah. Say it again. Say it three times. No, I can't say it three times. Say it three times. Just do it. It's a podcast. It's fun. Uyangalele, Uyangalele, Uyangalele. <laughs> um, three, even with that three, seems like a lot for like any program. Like Dabo's going to have five national titles when he's done. Maybe he will. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I would say Clemson at two. I think I would put Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State like sort of all even at two um, as like a nod to me. Like I think those are the three programs, and I don't think the gap's all that wide. And I think the gap that does exist, because there is one between Ohio State and the rest of them, I think is shrinking a little bit. So I would put all those three programs at two. I would keep Oklahoma at one because Lincoln Riley is always going to have a quarterback, so I think it makes sense to have them there. James Franklin, while he's recruited very well, has not gotten that guy yet. And he was supposed to get fields, and he didn't get them. And who knows who he might get down the road. But I think until he shows that he can go out and get an NFL-caliber quarterback, I don't think I'd have him on this list to win a national title in the next decade. Maybe I'd put him right on the outside of it. Um, I might actually go, like, two Clemson, two Alabama, two Ohio State, two Georgia. And that's eight, right? One Oklahoma, one LSU. I think that's how I would do it. All right, here's what I'm going to say. Caleb Williams, the number one dual threat quarterback in the country, a five-star prospect, the number five national overall player in the 247 sports composite rankings. Top final five, Clemson, LSU, Maryland, Oklahoma, and Penn State. Whoever gets them gets a national championship. <laughs> if you're going to, because like, I mean, that's what you're talking about, right? We're talking about yeah. acquiring high talent. We're talking about the five teams that we're discussing, and we're talking about the best quarterback in the country. And I get that there's a number one quarterback every year, and Ugalele was one, and you know Bryce. Bryce, what's his last name? Bryce Young. Bryce Young at Alabama. Sorry, I, I just was talking about that on Andy Staples show, and I just forgot his last name. But this is what it's about, and it's just funny that his top five is kind of mirroring, mirroring uh, what Mark M said in his question. So, but to me, I hate to to this point disappoint Minnesota and Wisconsin. I don't think they get it. I don't think they're close to, to being able to do the things that you have to do to win a conference championship, especially with how stacked the east side is. I think Penn State, they need to get their shit together, though, when it comes to uh, how they're recruiting in this year's class, though, because they're a little bit behind. They just recently picked up a big-time commitment, but they 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 fall off this list really quick. And the one thing I will say, if we're going to be making a point about Penn State, is, is Caleb Williams the type of prospect that Penn State just needs to get eventually? I mean, they had a commitment from Justin Fields that obviously didn't pan out. You know, they've been down the line with Julian Fleming, but do they need just a top five overall prospect in America to sign before we can actually take them seriously as a counterpart to Ohio State? In general or at the quarterback position? I mean, I'm thinking at the quarterback position especially. Because, like, they've had good quarterbacks. I think I thought McSorley was a really awesome um, college quarterback, and I, I'll say he might be the best quarterback that I think Ohio State's faced in the Big Ten, um, you know, since Connor Cook, um, and maybe even better than him just based on the way that he – but I think the thing that's separating Ohio State from Penn State in, in terms of that James Franklin rant, rant about um, closing the gap is closing the gap at that position. And they've been down the line with some really, really good quarterbacks, and I think that – if Justin Fields was on the other team two years ago when they almost uh, won or whatever, if they had their five-star quarterback during those two games we just broke down 20 minutes ago, I think that Penn State is a playoff champ- uh, Sorry, a playoff contender, national championship contender. I agree, and like it happened, we saw it last year. Like Sean Clifford, I think is a nice quarterback. Um, I don't think he's a quarterback who wins you a championship. And last year, like he got hurt, and Will Levis came into the game, and he is not particularly good either. Now, Ohio State didn't have great quarterback depth last year either, but that was like a blip on the radar. Usually, they're going to have at least two guys that I think you can feel good about. And Penn State, uh, while I agree with you on McSorley, I just I think they're missing that piece. And I guess it depends on what you want to be. And I would say the same thing with Michigan too. I don't think Penn State. Penn State and Michigan are behind Ohio State. I think that if your uh, benchmark is to be reasonably competitive with Ohio State every year, which Penn State has been more than Michigan, you need to pick up the slack a little bit at the quarterback position. I think this is their chance. I think that the kid is from D.C. Penn State has recruited the Northeast really well. That's been their bread and butter. They've owned the DMV area. Um, Obviously, Maryland is trying to get him to stay home. 
But until that happens, uh, for the second year in a row, I still think they have to be considered a long shot here. I think Caleb Williams has been rumored to be silently committed to Oklahoma. Um, But there's a lot of time and there's a lot of visits and a lot of shit that has to happen uh, between now and um, signing day before we can really make that decision. If Penn State can close on a kid like that, then all of a sudden I'm saying, hey, this team is legit and this is the team that Ohio State needs to fear. And they do. They already fear them. Um, And it's the team that has faced... Uh, faced them the best. They've given them the most problems um, in the recent past. And, you know, it was Michigan State as Urban Meyer was building things up. And ever since Ohio State got rolling, Penn State's played them tough. And it's because I think Penn State has more talent than any other team in the conference. So um, I've got one more question, Bill, and I think we're, we're pushing it in terms of time, but I thought this was a tremendous question and I wanted to ask it to you, okay? Um, from Jackson B., if the season somehow starts on time, I don't think there's going to be enough time um, or a lot of freshmen on the roster to get mentally ready to play. Because if they true freshmen who enrolled early obviously have missed spring ball, um, fall camp, even though I don't think there's any possible way they could play a season without having a fall camp to some extent, um, at least a six-week period to get these kids ready, I do think that um, this situation will make it harder for freshmen to be ready right away. So he says, which upperclassmen do you think will benefit the most um, from the lack of reps or the lack of ability from the freshmen to come in and take spots, which I think is a pretty good question. Yeah, if that's true, I don't know if I hundred percent hundred percent agree with the premise because these kids are coming out of high school more and more advanced, and like everyone's going to be starting from the same level. It's not like Ohio State's pushback and not everybody else. But I think it's a, it's a sound idea. And if that's the case, and these guys are just kind of far behind, and there's openings for older guys, and we wouldn't be there otherwise. I'm looking at two guys. Jalen Harris and Demario McCall. It has to be receiver, right? Because they just signed four top 60 receivers. Um, Nicholas Petit-Friere might be another good one. Because Paris Johnson is going to be competing with him to be the starting right tackle. I think that's probably the number one answer. Um, but I think receiver is very sound. Because of how much talent. I mean, they're bringing in top-level talent at that position. And there's, there's reps to be had. So, anyway. Okay, well, I know we went a little bit long, Bill. Thanks so much for putting up with my obnoxious voice for as long as you did. Um, for everybody else, I hope you enjoyed the um, question, answer, subscriber um, podcast. We're going to probably try to do this more often because, A, it's easier for us. B, it's more enjoyable to know what you guys are thinking. And C, I know that you guys appreciate it. And, of course, before I let you go, I just want to remind you to consider, please, joining The Athletic. That's uh, what we do and what we're proud of. Um, www.theathletic.com 4-6 gets you 40% off of a subscription um, and you get all of our work in writing too so uh, for Bill um, I'm Ari thanks again for listening and that was 4-6 with A and B